Well, good evening. We are delighted that you're here. My name is Eric Barton, and I'm the pastor of the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church, one of the uh, churches that has come together to try to put this on. You're going to hear more about what we're doing and why, but I was, I was thinking about this this evening. I, my mind took me to the 15th chapter of Acts, one of the very first times that the different leaders of the church came together to wrestle with some issues. And so I'm delighted that we get to do that in a sort of similar fashion this evening. Wanted to let you know of a couple quick housekeeping issues. Out on the foyer are the restrooms. Should nature call, you are more than welcome to answer. Right out there in the foyer. Uh, there won't be a disturbance at all if you need to go. That's totally fine. Also, uh, all that we are doing for the next six weeks has been underwritten uh, somewhat by some of the churches that are participating. But if you feel so led, and you would like to make a contribution to pay for some of the advertising and the graphics productions, those sorts of things. No pressure, there is no cost, but if you should feel led to make a donation, that's wonderful, we would appreciate that. There's a brown wooden box between the exit doors. You can put your donation in there. We'll make sure that goes 100% to the putting on of this Reformation 500. Here's what I'd love to do. I'm gonna pray for us, invite all of us to join together in prayer. And then I'm going to turn it over to Mark Brayton, the senior pastor of our Savior's Lutheran Church here in Tyler, and he will begin the evening for us. So let's pray together. God, we affirm that you are and that you are good and that you love us. We pray that all of the proceedings for the next several weeks will bring honor and glory to you. You are worth that. Give us wisdom to hear. Give us hearts to be receptive. We pray this in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Mark. Well, good evening and welcome. Good to have everybody here. Thank you for coming. We really had no idea what to expect. We started talking about doing something, oh, a good number of months ago now, and so we put this together and figured we'd get somewhere between 15 and a few hundred people. Uh, we originally were going to meet downstairs in the foundry, and that seat's about 70 or 80, and as I'm doing a quick count, I'm glad we moved up here. We figured there'd be more room, and, and, uh, and uh, this way uh, we can expand to as we go. So thank you for coming. I'm uh, very excited. Uh, I think I'm probably more excited than anyone to, uh, to take a look at the Reformation from a number of different perspectives. Uh, and so we're going we're gonna to be at that these next few weeks. Uh, let's see. Oh, uh, I, oh I, I will. I, when Jesus talked about the blind leading the blind, that's me trying to tell people how to do technology. Modern technology and I just don't get along, but I, I do my best. I'll, I'll hit a, a slide or two here. Uh, I'm going to start out where our conversation is going to be in different perspectives on the Reformation. Uh, I'm, with our, I'm, the, I'm the, uh, the, the token Lutheran, and so I'm going to be sharing a, a, a Lutheran perspective. Uh, and actually, can I have the next slide too while we're, uh, while we're at it? One of the questions I had to play with a little bit is, is why are we doing all this? You know, what, what just, it seems like a good thing to do. Uh, what do we want to have happen? Why are we doing this? And some things that came to my mind uh, and that I'm excited about, one is to learn some history. I mean, learn some history from each other. I have to confess, I don't know a lot about the Reformation in England. I don't know a lot about the Counter-Reformation. Uh, and I'm hoping to find out. Uh, I think if we're going to... Uh, move on together, we've got to know where we've been. And so I'm very excited to do some, uh, do some uh, history. Uh, I'm also excited to do some, uh, learn some theology uh, and learn some, some different ways of looking at things from different faith traditions. I, uh, I, my, my 
approach to Christianity is Lutheran. You know, I'm trained as a Lutheran pastor. Uh, I enjoy Lutheran theology. I found that to be a very helpful way to understand my faith and to understand Christianity. I also realize it's not the only way. Uh, there are some very different perspectives out there that have some wonderful insights. And I think this becomes an opportunity to explore the faith from some other perspectives. And, and I, I covet those opportunities. And I think there are uh, great expectations, uh, times for us to, to grow and to learn. And so hopefully we can uh, enrich our own understandings. Uh, also, my, my hope is, uh, one of my hopes is, is that as we talk and get to know each other, there can also be some conversation. How do we move onward in faith? What does it mean to be faithful in Tyler in 2017? What, is a re what does it mean to be a reforming church nowadays? Uh, we live in a culture, I think it's safe to say, that is less and less Christians, and, and I think that behooves Christians to figure out how to work together and move on together. And I'm hoping this is an opportunity to do that. And then finally, uh, one more, I, this is just fun. I mean, I get to gather with brothers and sisters in Christ and talk some theology and talk some faith. I just love doing that. So I, I've, I've been more excited about this, I think, than, uh, than anyone. Uh, some, uh, uh, next slide, please. Uh, another reason for uh, talking about the Reformation is that this Reformation event had a profound influence on much of our modern denom denominational structure. Much of what we take for granted as Americans in denominations goes back to the Reformation. Reformation certainly had an impact on the Roman Catholic Church as they solidified, clarified some of their teachings. Uh, was marked the beginning for Lutherans, for Episcopalians, for the Reformed tradition. Uh, and, and so uh, uh, very important for, for us from a variety of, uh, of faith traditions. So uh, with that as background, I am going to talk tonight about Luther and Lutheranism. And I'll start by saying I, I have a fascination with Luther. He is absolutely intriguing to me. And I'm finding as I age, I'm more and more intrigued by Luther. Uh, I, he's got a knack for cutting to the heart of matters and for expressing faith in interesting and helpful ways. And I'm finding as, as I get older in ministry, it, is, uh, it has been helpful for me to read and reread Luther. Luther was brilliant. He was earthy. He was fascinating. He could be crude. He was tender. He was obstinate. Uh, he was an interesting character. And it's kind of fun to teach Luther because there's all these stories that uh, you can share uh, about what he was up to. I had a Presbyterian teacher, a brilliant man, and, and he said when he got to heaven, he was going to spend his first hundred years uh, talking with John Kelvin about, about uh, theology. But before he did that, he was going to stop and have a beer with Luther. And that kind of resonates. Luther is the kind of gay guy you could have a beer with and find the whole conversation uh, interesting. So I want to talk a little bit about Luther. I'll do one commercial. If uh, you're looking for a nice, short, easy introduction to Luther's life, I'd recommend the book Martin Luther, A Life by uh, Jim Nestigan. It's published by Augsburg Publishing House. And it's, it's a short read. It's a, it's a quick read. It's well-written. It's simple. It's uh, good theology, good history. If you really want just uh, a, a good, solid, quick introduction to who Luther was and what he did, a uh, good place to start. Well, Luther, where, what, where do I start? It's been interesting talking with some of the other speakers. Uh, and the question we all have is, how are we going to do this in an hour? 
I mean, how do I talk about Lutheranism in an hour? How do the Catholics talk about Catholic doctrine in an hour? How do you do the English Reformation in an hour? There's no way that's going to happen. Uh, and so I think what we'll do is some highlights and kind of give you some, some important points, and then hopefully you will have, uh, you know, it will create some interest for you to pursue on your own. And I think I can speak for, for all the speakers. If you've got specific questions uh, or interests, call us, corner us after some of these meetings. Uh, I mean, we like to talk theology. And so please do, uh, uh, do corner us. We'd love to pursue that with you. Well, Luther, you've got a picture of, of, of Martin on the, uh, on the, on the screen there. Uh, the dates for Luther were 1483 to 1546. Uh, Luther's father was a man named Hans Luder, uh, L-U-D-D-E-R. Uh, Luther actually changed his name. Uh, in his later years, as part of the Renaissance and part of the Reformation, there is a movement to get back to classical literature. And so a lot of emphasis on Greek and Latin. Uh, Luther was part of all that. Uh, and when he changed, he changed his name from Luther to Luther, uh, Luther is actually very close to the Greek spelling for the, the, the Greek word for freedom. And so he actually changed his name to kind of get closer to what he was about. Luther, anyway, was the son of Hans and Margarita Luther. Uh, Hans was a miner. Hans actually owned a copper mine and was a miner. Uh, we sometimes say Luther was a peasant. He was not from a peasant. If peasants were here, uh, Hans' family was probably one step up. It was still a long way to go to get to royalty. I mean, it was kind of a rough and tumble world down there. Uh, but Hans was, uh, was a miner, a uh, very strong, hardworking person, great a vision for putting up a business that his family could be part of. And he particularly uh, had a vision for his son, Martin. Martin was quite bright. Hans figured that uh, Martin would get educated as, as a lawyer. Uh, that would raise him up on the prestige scale. In addition, if you're running a mine and you're trying to get mineral rights and property rights and all those things, it's very handy to have a lawyer on call. And Hans would take care of that with his son, Martin. So Hans uh, sent uh, Martin to school to become a lawyer. Uh, Martin and Hans never got along. It was never a good relationship. Uh, and one of the issues in Luther's life always was, how does he deal with his father? Uh, but Hans was very happy. Uh, Luther started out in preparation to become a lawyer. Luther changed, and there's kind of a famous story about Luther being caught in a storm and lightning and thunder. Uh, and in the midst of it, he, he cried out to St. Anne and said, save me and I will become a monk. Uh, well, the, and actually, uh, there, even before that, Luther has a lot of interest uh, in pursuing a religious vocation. Uh, and he does. He drops, quits uh, law school, much to his father's displeasure, uh, and becomes an Augustinian monk. And so Luther is actually an Augustinian monk. He's a Roman Catholic priest, uh, and he's a university professor. He teaches at uh, Wittenberg University in Germany. Uh, Wittenberg was kind of a backwater town, and the school was kind of a backwater school, uh, but that's where, that's where uh, Luther's career was spent teaching. In our modern system, our modern divisions, uh, Luther would probably be a professor of Old Testament studies. That was kind of his area of, uh, of expertise. Luther's goal uh, was to reform the Catholic Church in Europe. His intent was to reform the Catholic Church. He did not succeed in that goal. He managed to split the Catholic Church in Europe. Uh, so I think to, to understand Luther uh, and what he did in his theology, you really have to understand Luther's personal life. Uh, Luther had an incredible sense of guilt. 
incredible sense of, of being a sinner, of dread. There, there's a marvelous German word, anfechten, which kind of means the sense of dread and shame and not being worthy. That's Luther. Uh, he is worried that he does not measure up before God. It's interesting in our modern day, one of the problems that people wrestle with is the question of, is there really a God? You know, is there a God and, and how do I find out about that? For Luther, the problem was there is a God. <laughs> he was quite convinced there is a God and this God by definition has to be holy and awesome and all-powerful and probably judgmental and wrathful. And if that's the case, how do you stand before such a God? How do you dare stand before God? And Luther is terrified. He doesn't know how to do it. Uh, spends years wrestling with this. Wrestles uh, with the faith. Wrestles with what it means to be Christian. Does everything he can imagine uh, to find forgiveness and justification. And so he's constantly going to confession, communion, acts of penance. Uh, there are stories. He literally wore his confessors out. You know, he would, he would have to go to private confession. He wouldn't have to go. Uh, he chose to go because he would go to private confession and in that uh, hear the words of forgiveness. And he would literally spend hours uh, thinking of everything possible he would, had done wrong. Uh, drove some of his confessors crazy. There's a story, one of his confessors finally had enough and after a couple hours just get off, got up and said, Martin, forget it. Just come back and, and, and when you've done something good and sinful, you know, come back and talk to me. But in the meanwhile, just knock it off. Uh, but Luther struggles with this for years. I mean, cannot find any kind of a gracious God, any sense of fulfillment. Uh, and notice, he's not finding his answers in the medieval uh, Catholic system. He's, he's a priest, he's a monk. Uh, Luther explores all of, uh, the, the, all of Catholicism and just doesn't find answers that make sense to him. He finally discovers, uh, based on his study of scripture, uh, that we are saved by grace through faith. Luther, as a professor, is actually doing a series of lectures uh, in the years 1513 through 1516. And they're on the book of Psalms and the book of Romans. And it really forces him uh, into the scripture. And as he studies the scripture, uh, he comes to the realization uh, that we are redeemed, we are saved, we are claimed by God solely because of God's grace. God saves us, not because we are such good people, but because God is such a gracious God. God, this holy and awesome God in his goodness, reaches out precisely for sinners. Luther latches onto a phrase that St. Paul used, justification by grace through faith, and that becomes the center of Luther's theology. I'm gonna talk more about this later when we get into some theological concepts. Uh, but for Luther, it turns faith around. Luther had had the idea that faith was a kind of a ladder we had to climb. Uh, an attempt to make ourselves holy enough to measure up before God. And, and with this discovery of justification, he realizes that it's just the opposite. Uh, that a holy God comes to him in Christ and says, I love you, I value you, you are forgiven. And that discovery uh, changes Luther's life. It just completely and totally reorientates his life. It answers his question, redeems his life, uh, and Luther is all excited about that. He then sets out, he decides that it is his mission to remind the church of this. Luther is convinced that this message of justification is central for the Christian faith. 
It's central for scripture, central for all that Christians are about. And so Luther wants to remind the church of the centrality of justification and the centrality of studying scripture. Uh, he doesn't find enough of that. He wants to remind the church of that. However, before he gets very far with that, endo that, that endeavor, he gets into an argument about money. I mean, what else do Christians argue about than money? Uh, a number of historians uh, have said that the Lutheran church really begins on a stewardship program gone bad. Uh, and unfortunately, there's, there is a good deal of truth to that. Uh, Luther got into a good argument over a, a sale of things called indulgences. And I'll just, I'll, I'll put this up on the, uh, on the slide. Uh, I want to be very careful here uh, because we Lutherans have a habit of caricaturing and simplifying indulgences. And we don't adequately teach Catholic doctrine. We make it simpler because then it's easier to explain and it makes us look a little better. Uh, and, and so the, the standard Lutheran line is, is that the Catholic Church was some forgiveness uh, and Luther reacted against that. Uh, and that is, that is not accurate. That, that simply is, is, is not accurate. And so I'm going to try to explain a little bit of what indulgences are. And, and, and uh, Father Joshua, if I'm too far off base, correct me. Uh, and, and if not, correct us next week. Uh, and in fact, that, that's part of what I'm, I'm looking for here is, is to get some of our own biases challenged and examined. Uh, but I, do, I was reading an article by a Lutheran theologian uh, actually yesterday. Uh, and the, uh, the, the, I mean, very clearly, uh, the Catholic Church was teaching you could buy forgiveness, and Luther had to correct that. And that really was not uh, what was going on at the time. Indulgences originally uh, were certificates issued by the church to recognize significant acts of penance, uh, undergoing a pilgrimage, works of humility. Such acts were understood to merit special favor and pardon from God. In Roman Catholic theology, there is a distinction made between the guilt of a sin and the subsequent temporal punishment that are a result of the sin. There is, a, there, there is a distinction, am I on the right course here? I hope that there's a distinction between the, the, the actual guilt of a sin uh, and the, uh, the, the ramifications of that, the temporal punishment, the temporal ramifications uh, of, that, of that sin. Uh, the, the, the guilt of a sin has to be forgiven. You deal with that in confession, that sin has to be forgiven by God, but the ramifications of the act continue and need to be addressed in acts of penance. And, and one of the, the great examples of this is David in the Old Testament. Uh, you remember the Old Testament story of David cheating with Bathsheba? Uh, David decides that he needs another wife, uh, claims Bathsheba, who's the wife of another man. Uh, and and uh, uh, he, of course, is in the wrong. The prophet Nathan comes to David and confronts him and said, David, what you did is wrong. And David realizes, yeah, what I did was wrong. And so David repents. Uh, David realizes that he was wrong. Uh, he is forgiven, but the baby dies anyway. There are ramifications of the wrong that David did. Uh, and and, and the, the Catholic distinction is to, is to get at that. Okay, guilt is forgiven, uh, but there are ramifications. There's temporal uh, punishment uh, that are temporal things that are the result of our sin. Those have to be dealt with through penance, uh, and if they're not dealt with in penance, then they're dealt with through purgatory. That's a period after life uh, where you can uh, where you can uh, you can deal with these things. Okay? So, 
1500s, uh, tremendous need for money in the Catholic Church. I guess the church of every age has a tremendous need for money. Uh, but there are need for money. Uh, a lot of the money that was being raised was being used to build St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Uh, a lot of the money was also being uh, raised by Archbishop Mainz in, in, in Luther's area. Uh, in those days, you bid on becoming a bishop or an archbishop, and he became archbishop, had to pay off the debt that he had uh, in becoming an archbishop, and so there were, uh, there were some debts to be paid off. So need to raise money. Uh, a Catholic priest named Johann Tetzel came into the area, and he began selling indulgences. Uh, indulgences were actually given on the basis of a cash donation. Uh, they did not grant forgiveness, but they were to remit your penalties. They were a way of, 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 of addressing uh, in, in penance the, the results of your sin. And Tetzel went further and said, if you had people that you loved in purgatory, that you could give a donation and buy indulgences for them, and they would then be freed from purgatory uh, and could go right to heaven. So Tetzel is selling this, doesn't actually sell it in Wittenberg. The Wittenberg uh, uh, ruler won't let, let him into Wittenberg, but all the area around it he's selling, and so it becomes a popular, popular item. Luther finds out about it uh, and, and doesn't like what's going on. Now, uh, another point I think has to be raised is, is that what Tetzel was teaching was not good Catholic doctrine. Uh, Tetzel was actually breaking from Catholic doctrine, and in 1518, a year after the Reformation started, the Catholic Church actually said no, that what Tetzel was teaching was, uh, was, uh, was, was wrong, and, and, and they addressed that and stopped that, which always raises a question for me, uh, did this have to be a church dividing issue? You know, the, the sale of indulgences was kind of the match that, that started the Reformation. Uh, if the Catholic Church a year later said, you know, what's going on here is not correct and not in accord with, uh, with, with good Catholic teaching, maybe we could have addressed this in a better manner. You know, is, is, could, we have, could we have, did this have to cause a division? Uh, and maybe that's a question for us to discuss as we go through the next, uh, the next six weeks. Well, what Luther did, what Luther did when he heard about all this uh, is, is he, he did not like what was going on. And so Luther wrote up what were called the 95 Theses. 95 uh, statements of faith, uh, many having to do with indulgences and the sale of indulgences. And Luther took these 95 theses and nailed them to the church door in Wittenberg. Okay. Now, if, if you've watched some popular uh, portrayals of Luther, what very often happens is Luther is portrayed as, as this monk who wants to explode the Catholic Church, and so he marches up to you know, the church door in an act of defiance and hammers these, these demands on the church door and is just waiting for things to blow. And that's actually not what happened. Uh, uh, what actually happened, uh, church doors in a university town were the, were the university bulletin boards. And it was a place if you had announcements, that's where you hung your announcements. Luther wrote the 95 Theses in Latin, not in German. He did not intend them for the general populace. What he wanted is to get church leaders uh, and academic people in the church together to talk about the 95 Theses, look at them, and, and, and hopefully reform these practices. It was meant to be the start of a theological debate. Well, guess what? <laughs> it didn't quite work that way. 95 theses were very quickly uh, translated into German. The printing press has just recently been invented, and so they are now quickly disseminated all over, uh, all over Europe. 
Uh, there have been some previous reform movements that haven't worked, but they now regain a whole lot of energy, and a whole lot of politics come into play. There are a lot of uh, German rulers that are tired of answering to Rome. There are a lot of German rulers that are tired of German money going to help rebuild things in, in Rome. Uh, and so what was meant to be uh, an academic theological debate explodes uh, and becomes ju just this absolute explosion and argument. Uh, the Roman Catholic authorities step in and tell Luther that he needs to recant. Take it back, shut up. And remember, Luther is an Augustinian monk. He has taken a vow of obedience uh, to the Catholic authorities. And so he struggles with all this and finally concludes uh, that he cannot recant unless proven on the basis of scripture and clear human reason that he's wrong. Uh, so he refuses uh, to recant. There are arguments, letters back and forth, trials. This goes on for a couple of years. The Pope finally sends a letter uh, demanding that Luther uh, recant or he will be excommunicated. Luther takes the letter and gathers the faculty of Wittenberg and some of the students and publicly burns the letter. <laughs> One of my thoughts for years is that what Luther really needed was a good PR agent. That, you know, just someone to say, you know, Martin, this is kind of a hot topic, you know, and, and, and tempers are a little afraid that, you know, burning the letter is probably not the best way to go at it. Uh, but he does, Luther had his own obstinate side, uh, and with that you really have the split. You really have Luther's excommunicated, uh, and, and you have the, the split between what become the Lutherans and the, uh, and the Catholics. Uh, a few points along with that. Uh, Lutherans originally were called evangelicals. The name they picked for themselves was evangelicals from the New Testament word uh, for the good news of what happens in Christ. Uh, the, the term Lutheran was, was a disparaging term put on by Luther's opponents. Uh, it was a way of making, ah, you're followers of Martin Luther. And so they called him Lutheran as a way of, of, of being a put down, and that has stuck over the years, and so we're, we're Lutherans. Uh, <laughs> Luther was a very conservative reformer, uh, was, was very careful, did not want to do too much. In fact, the standard that Luther used uh, was that unless something conflicts with Scripture, don't, don't change it. You know, whether or not you totally agree with Luther, uh, his standard was, uh, unless something conflicts with Scripture, don't change it. So he very intentionally kept a lot of Catholic, uh, a lot of Catholic practices and doctrine. Uh, in fact, uh, Lutheran worship is still very similar to the Catholic Mass. Our liturgy is very much the same. We wear robes, uh, we chant, a lot of our theology is the same. Uh, what happened is that other theologians came along after Luther and said, you didn't go far enough, and then pushed the envelope even further. But Luther very intentionally was a, was a conservative reformer. Oh, uh, fun point to, just to get you thinking. Uh, Luther was seeking a church council, a meeting of church leaders to come and examine the church and possibly look at reforming the church. What he wanted was, was church leaders to come together and really look what was going on and, and possibly examine the church and possibly make some reforms. Obviously didn't happen. In the 1960s, the Second Vatican Council met in the Catholic Church and did a, did a thorough examination of Catholic practice, uh, did some reforming, uh, a major council in the 1960s. A number of historians, both Lutheran and Catholic, have said that's what Luther was asking for back in the Reformation. 
And one of the interesting questions, one of the questions to pursue is if Vatican II had happened 450 years earlier, would there ever have been a Lutheran denomination? I will also, uh, actually, can I get the, get the next slide too? Uh, one of the ways to understand Luther is, uh, this is probably a little cheeky, but Germans never fight a war on one front. I mean, if you know, when, whenever Germany goes to war, you know, it's, there's the East Front, and the West, they're always fighting a number, of, uh, a number of different directions. Luther is a good typical German. He's fighting on a number of, of, of fronts. And so he's got his arguments with the Catholics on, on one front. At the same time, there are some reformers saying, Luther, you haven't gone far enough. You need to do more. In fact, there's a group that Luther labeled as the enthusiasts. And he called them that because they were all excited about the Holy Spirit. Uh, and their thought was that, that the Holy Spirit gave them such new and good insights uh, that they could leave behind scripture and the traditions of the church and move on into new and exciting faith. And, and massive reforms, uh, massive changes. And Luther said, no, we are grounded in scripture. We're not gonna go that route. Uh, but he had a major battle with those folks going on. In addition, there are other reforms going on in Switzerland. Uh, and Luther, I don't know if you'd call it a battle with them, uh, he, he has interaction with them. Uh, there's, there's conflict and arguments all the way around. Uh, one of the interesting pieces in the Reformation is that while Luther is doing his work, uh, there's very similar work going on in Switzerland. Uh, there's um, a man named Ulrich uh, Zwingli, uh, who is doing very similar things to, uh, uh, that Luther is doing. Uh, uh, and actually, when the Reformed folks talk about this, you're going to hear a lot more about Zwingli, and probably a whole lot more accurately. Uh, but Zwingli, very, very similar stuff that Luther was doing. Some cross-pollinization between Luther and Zwingli. Luther had read Zwingli's stuff. Zwingli had read Luther's stuff. They were uh, uh, reacting to a lot of similar things in the time. In 1519, one of the uh, rulers, a man named Philip I of Hesse, decided that he would get Luther and Zwingli together in the same room, and they would hammer out all their differences. And I would love to tell you that Philip was motivated by concern for the church, you know, and wanted to have pure doctrine and have everything worked out. That's not the case. Uh, Philip was actually motivated by politics and wanted to have kind of a united front uh, in, in, in the Reformation work. So he got Luther and Zwingli and a number of their, their co-workers together. Uh, and very good conversation. I mean, they worked together, they talked. They met at a place called Marburg in, a, in what is now Germany, and uh, they call it the Marburg uh, Colloquy. And they had 15 articles of faith uh, that, that they were set to look at. And they looked at them, and they agreed on 14 of the 15. They actually agreed on 14 of the 15. The one they couldn't agree on was Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper. They could not reach an agreement on that. Uh, and because of that, it fell apart, no agreement, and they never got back together again. But it, it's another point, when I look at some of that historically, uh, you know, couldn't you guys just have agreed to disagree? I mean, there, there wouldn't have to be a Lutheran and a Presbyterian in, in Bible churches. You know, there, there was a, a major effort, and they came very, very close uh, to doing that, but did not, uh, did not quite succeed. So, how am I doing on time? I gotta do, I'm gonna do one more, one more piece of history and then I'll get into some theology. Uh, uh, can I have the next slide? I've, I've got it, in, in the midst of all this, Luther gets married. In the midst of all this, Luther gets married. Uh, and it's one of my favorite stories from the Reformation. I apologize to the uh, members of our saviors that are here because I, I love telling this story. Uh, but it actually it, uh, does have some points for what we do with the Reformation. Uh, Luther gets married. There are uh, seven nuns 
uh, in, in one of the Catholic convents that read Luther's works and decide that he's right. They decide they want to join the Lutheran movement uh, and leave the, uh, uh, leave the convent. And so they contact Luther, have some correspondence back and forth. Uh, the Lutherans literally sneak them out of the convent one night. They put them in a wagon uh, full of barrels, uh, full of, of pickled herring, uh, and, and sneak these poor women out. And they, they, they bring them over to where Luther is. Uh, and, and, uh, and the question then becomes, what do you do with seven ex-nuns? You know, have seven former nuns who want to be part of the Lutheran movement, what do you do with them? Well, Luther, being a great chauvinist of the time, says, marry them off. You know what else do you do with them? So uh, uh, they actually get six of the nuns married very quickly. There's one left, a woman named Catherine von Bora. And we know from history that Catherine was very intelligent, uh, very hardworking, very industrious, very, very uh, stubborn, very, very, very strong-willed. Uh, and there was some suggestion among Luther's followers that maybe he should marry her. And Luther said, no, I'm not the marrying kind. And actually, at this point in his life, Luther expected uh, to, to be burned at the stake, that there had been previous people who tried what Luther did, and none of them survived. So he's thinking he's not a good marriage, uh, marriage candidate. Uh, and so Catherine is engaged to a German nobleman. And the, uh, uh, the engagement does not last long. I guess the nobleman found her a little too opinionated uh, and broke off the engagement. And Catherine made mention that she would consider marrying Dr. Luther. <laughs> and so some of Luther's friends said, Martin, this one's for you. And uh, <laughs> Luther agreed. And they, they got married. And historians have argued ever since why they got married. Uh, and, and some suggest that it was, might have been just a matter of convenience. Somebody had to take care of this nun, and it could be, a, you know, it could be, a, could be Luther. Some other historians have suggested that, that a big piece of Luther's theology is that faith is to be shared and lived in the home. Uh, Luther goes so far as to say that the holiest uh, calling for any Christian is to be a Christian parent. And, and he's teaching the importance of Christian parenting and life, uh, life in the family. And there is some thought that maybe Luther wanted to live out his own theory, that if he's teaching all this, then maybe he better walk the walk. Uh, and so for whatever the reason, he marries her. And it, uh, the marriage literally starts on this cold, calculating basis. There is absolutely no romance in, in, in this marriage. Uh, but what's interesting is the two fall deeply in love. It becomes a marvelous marriage. They have a large family, six kids. Uh, we have a lot of the letters between Martin and Katie uh, and, and to the children, and it becomes an absolutely marvelous marriage. Uh, and, and Catherine very quickly becomes indispensable to Luther. Uh, they have six children, two die in childhood, and it devastates Luther. I mean, it just rips his heart out. Uh, it's interesting, this man who can be so coarse in his arguments with papal authorities, you know, just grieves and, 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 and in pain uh, over the loss of his, tri of, of his children. Uh, interesting, uh, interesting side of Luther. Uh, but it, uh, it, it uh, good marriage, and uh, uh, Catherine, is, Catherine in her own right is quite the character. Uh, she very industrialist. Uh, she uh, starts forming with a garden because there's, uh, there, I mean, how else do you feed six kids on a professor's uh, salary? Uh, does well in the garden, eventually buys a farm, uh, gets, makes enough money, buys a second farm, uh, brews her own beer, sells some of that, uh, actually makes, is, is making a pretty good, a good living. There's some marvelous correspondence. Luther, in a number of his letters, Mar, uh, says that the best beer in Germany is brewed by, 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 by Katie. Uh, and there's actually, and we think it's historically accurate, there's one point Catherine went to the, the city council in Wittenberg and asked them to stop 
dumping garbage in the river on Tuesdays because that was the day she took water out of the river for brewing beer and she needed the best water she could get. I mean, she, interesting person. Uh, but they fall deeply in life and in love. Luther discovers in the midst of that the truth of what he's been teaching, uh, that, that family is integral, that, that, that the, one of the, the places you serve and live in the name of Jesus Christ is in those closest to you. And it becomes an important theme in his ministry. Uh, he writes the small catechism to be used in families. Uh, it, it, some powerful stuff there. It, it would seem to me that an interesting uh, point to move onward in Reformation thought in our culture would be to talk about how our faith influences family. You know, I think that would be a point that all denominations could very quickly agree on. And we live in a culture that is doing some redefining of family and marriage. And, and I think it would be an interesting exploration and celebration of the Reformation to talk about what, what, what does it mean to be Christian families. I think that could be very, very profitable. So. Anyway, that's a whole lot of history. Let me move into some theology before I run out of time, and I do want to give you some uh, chance for questions. Uh, so a little bit of theology. Uh, one thing that I have found very helpful in understanding Luther is that he is not so much a systematic theologian as he is a preacher and a teacher of preachers. And what I mean by that is, is uh, the, in, in church history, there are some marvelous people we call systematic theologians. And what they do is they try to put together a comprehensive understanding of the Christian faith. They... Uh, uh, they look at all the aspects of the faith, you know, sin, redemption, creation, Jesus, uh, and they put it all together in, 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 in a form, in a system uh, that, that fits together and is, and is understandable. And there have been some marvelous scholars, St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, is, is one of the great ones. John Kelvin did some good work there. There's been some very good systematic theologians in the history of the church. Luther was not a systematic theologian. He was a preacher and a teacher of preachers. And rather than making everything fit together in a system, his concern was that the gospel of Jesus Christ be preached and that that be proclaimed. And I think if you get Luther at Luther with that understanding, uh, it, it, it gives you some insight into what he's doing and it's a helpful way to, uh, to get at him. So. Let me hit, uh, let me hit uh, actually, are you, are you folks still with me? You got another uh, a few more minutes to, to keep going with all this? Good. I said, nobody's getting too glassy-eyed yet, and that's always a, that's always a good thing. Uh, some key points of Luther's theology, the key, is what Luther called justification by grace through faith. God is about the business of justifying and reaching out to sinners. That was the center for Luther. It's still the central for the Lutheran church. Uh, one of the ways you can understand Lutheran theology is, you ever seen a bike wheel? You know, you got the wheel here and you got all the spokes and then there's the hub at the center. And the, the hub is what holds everything in place. That hub is absolutely central. Lutheran theology can be understood as a bike wheel and the center is justification by grace through faith. That's the doctrine Lutherans live and die for. That's what we proclaim as being absolutely, absolutely center, central. Uh, what the faith is about is about a God who in unbelievable grace comes looking precisely for sinners and calls us into the new life, into the new life in Christ. Uh, a little bit of background with that. Luther and Lutherans in general operate with, with, with a really strong sense of sin. We, we operate with a sense that this world just is not what it's meant to be. You know what the New Testament word for sin is? I love this. You know what the, the, in the New Testament, the word for sin, it's a Greek word. It's the Greek word harmartia. And it's a word from archery. 
and it literally means to miss the mark. You ever done art? You ever gone to Bible camp and done archery? You know, and, and, and when you do archery, they've got this pattern on, on a hay bale, and there's the bullseye, and then there's the circles all around it. And what you want to do is take the bow and arrow and hit the center, right? And if you're like me, you don't. <laughs> you miss the mark, and your arrow goes off somewhere and doesn't even hit the dog on hay bale. Huh? Well, the New Testament word for sin is to miss the mark. We are caught up in this thing that has enslaved this world, enslaved our lives, and it just, this world becomes not what God intended it to be. Uh, uh, I think in our modern day, we, a lot of times, we reduce sin to simply a moral category. You know, we do some things wrong. And it certainly is that. Uh, but in Luther's thought, it's more than that. It's all the world being out of whack. This world just is not what God created the world to be. Uh, and I think if you have any questions, if that's accurate, read the newspaper tomorrow morning. I mean, what do we do with this crisis with North Korea? How do you straighten things out in the Middle East? Closer to home, how do I make sense out of my own life? You know, the, this world just gets to be a mess. How do you straighten it out? And the first answer we always give is, well, by ourselves, right? Pull yourself by, up by your own bootstraps, do it, straighten, your, straighten yourself out, straighten the world out. And Luther's discovery was that doesn't work. We can't do it. It doesn't work. So how does things get straightened out? And the answer Luther finds in Scripture is that God does for us what we can't do for ourselves. God in Jesus Christ comes and redeems those of us who are sinners, those of us who are broken. And in Jesus Christ, God is making all things new. And this, uh, this, this, this justifying grace is God's gift, God's promise. Uh, God doesn't wait for us to become holy enough. God doesn't wait for us to decide for him. God rather seeks us while we're yet sinners and says, come, come into my grace. Uh, Luther loves Paul's phrase, we are justified by grace. Luther picks up in his Bible, biblical studies that when the Bible talks about God's justice, that God's justice is finally expressed in justifying us. God's justice is expressed in justifying us. God's righteousness is expressed in making us all right. Rather than be becoming a series of demands that we have to work our way up to, it becomes God's gift that God freely gives. And in that gift and in that love, we are formed as the people of God. I think the best analogy that I have for that is how parents deal with children. Huh? I think if, if, if uh, parents have a child and you decide that you're going to love the child when he decides to love you, and, and when the child is worthy of your love, uh, you're going to create little messes. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't work. As, as near as I can tell with my parents, when I was born, they loved me while I was unlovable. Huh? They took home this little bundle of humanity, and I think I did nothing to earn their love. As near as I can figure out, I made inappropriate noises, woke them up at bad times, dirty diapers. I mean, there's not a lot lovable about that. They loved me anyway. It was their gift to me. And out of that love, I was formed as a person who could love others. Their love was their gift. That's what then formed me in, 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 into who I am. Luther would say that's how God deals with us. He's our heavenly father. Doesn't wait until we're good enough, until we decide for him. Rather, Christ dies when we are yet sinners, if I may quote the apostle Paul. Uh, that Jesus comes precisely to call sinners 
And, and then in that grace and newness and forgiveness, we are shaped to become the people of God. And Luther then finds this all over the place in the New Testament. I mean, Jesus in Matthew 9 talks about, I've come not for the righteous, but to call sinners. Paul's writings, I mean, we are justified by grace through faith. It's what God does for us. That's the center for Lutherans. That, 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 uh, whenever Lutherans get into theological conversations, that's, that's where we have to start. So I think that one's pretty acceptable. Uh, let, me, let me move into one that's probably going to throw more of a curveball at an East Texas audience. <laughs> and that is, I'll take the next slide, and that is The Bondage of the Will. Uh, one of Luther's favorite books that he wrote was a book entitled The Bondage of the Will. Uh, uh, he wrote it, there was a, another uh, a theologian named Erasmus who wrote a book called The Freedom of the Will, and Luther came back and said, no, we don't have free wills, we're in bondage. Now, I want to play with that a little bit because I've noticed in East Texas, and actually in American theology in general, we put a big emphasis on our decision, right? We have free wills, and we decide for Jesus. Huh? And we, we make decisions, and we put a, we put a, put a lot of emphasis on our, uh, on our free will. Uh, and Luther does an end around on that and says, eh, when it comes to matters of faith, you're probably not as free as you think you are. And I, I will confess, I struggle with Luther here. Uh, Martin and I have had a 40-year wrestling match in all this. Uh, I first discovered this part of Luther when I was in college, and I was absolutely horrified. So Luther said, what? <laughs> uh, and over the years, I have wrestled with Luther, and we've argued, and doggone it, he's on to something. He's, he's, he's got something. It's a different way of looking at things. Uh, but he's on to something. And what, what Luther says is, is that were we created with free will? Yeah. And that's what got us into trouble. We used our free will to pick sin. I mean, the Adam and Eve story. Do they, can they make a choice? Yeah, what do they do? They eat the fruit as soon as they can. Uh, the problem is uh, free will becomes not the solution to our problems, but the cause of it. We use our free will to pick sin, and then sin is this weird thing that kind of grows tentacles and engulfs us and takes us over, and we get more and more caught up in it, and we just can't escape it. I, I had a, uh, years ago, I had a member of my congregation, uh, who, a member who was a recovering alcoholic, and uh, I remember him saying, you know, he said, since, I've, since I quit drinking, he said, life's been a whole lot simpler for me. He said, I just tell the truth. He said, for years, I, I lied, and I had to remember who I told what lie to, and I could never keep it all straight. You know, what story did I tell you? And he, and, and he said, it just got worse and worse. I'd tell one lie here and one lie there, and then I'd have other lies. And, and sin is like that. It just gets worse and worse and worse. And, and it's got this ability to kind of take over life. And Luther says, we're in bondage to sin. The other thing that, uh, the question that comes up is, where does Luther get all this stuff? And the answer is the Bible. Uh, let me, can I read for you for just a couple of passages out of Romans 7? Uh, Romans 7, beginning with verse 18. Paul writes, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at home. 
For I delight the law of God in my inner being, but in my members another law wages against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin and dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he goes on and says, thanks be to God and Jesus Christ for, for setting me free. But if you listen to that, that's a man in bondage. When I know what I want to do and I can't do it, that's bondage. And so for, for Luther, uh, not so much emphasis on a free will as a will that's bound up. And the question becomes, who's going to set us free? Who's going to set us free? There's some interesting parallels uh, to uh, Luther's approach in our modern 12-step uh, programs. If you've uh, ever looked at what happens in AA, uh, the first step is to admit that we are powerless over alcohol, right? And then the next, is it the next step or one of the steps a little further on is, is that I cannot free myself, but I believe that a higher power can restore me to life. Luther would say, amen, <laughs> uh, I am, I'm in bondage to sin, but I believe that a higher power named Jesus Christ can, can set me free. So it's interesting to me how some, some modern groups have picked up on that. I, uh, I will confess, I, still, I wrestle with Luther on this. I mean, my own life, I experience myself as making choices. I mean, I've always got some will. I mean, I, 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 so I wrestle with Luther on this. And yet, he's got something. And, and what, I've, what I've come to realize is, is, is that there, there's a sin that's got me in my grasp, but I can't quite free. You know, the, one of the classic definitions of sin is to be turned in on ourselves. Uh, according to scripture, we are created uh, for fellowship with God and for fellowship with, with others. And fullness of life is always found in those relationships. Sin is to say, forget that noise, I'm just interested in me. It's to be turned in on ourselves. Huh? And, and I don't know about the rest of you, but I have moments in my life where I recognize just how deep that is. I mean, I'm smart enough to know my fullness of life comes in following Christ and in dealing with God and others. And yet when push comes to shove, doggone, the first thing I think about is me. And I begin to realize there's something at work here that I'm not going to free by myself. Uh, and Luther would say, yeah, that's, that's the power of sin. Uh, but thanks be to God. Uh, he justifies. He does business precisely with sinners. So. Okay? Uh, I imagine we'll have some discussion on that. that. That's one of Luther's more controversial points. Let me do one more point out of Luther, and then we'll, uh, then we'll uh, do some questions, okay? Uh, last point. We want to talk a little bit about the Word of God, and particularly law and gospel. Uh, Lutheran theology, Luther in particular, uh, was rooted in the Word of God. Luther is absolutely convinced that God is a God who speaks who communicates with us. And that word is always a word of power, a word of life, a word that changes things. Uh, to give you a human example, uh, a lot of my words uh, simply describe things. A lot of my language doesn't create any reality. A lot of my words simply describe things. For example, I'm wearing a white shirt. Or there's a lot of people here tonight. I mean, those words are simply a description of what's going on, right? But there is some language I can use that creates reality. There are some words I use that actually don't describe reality, they create it. Uh, for example, uh, if I come to you and say, I hate you, you know, never gonna speak to you again. That's formative for our relationship, not in a good way, but it actually creates something in our relationship. Or on the other hand, if I come to you and say, you know, I love you, you're very special to me, that forms our relationship. Or my favorite example, for those of you that are married, uh, there was a time in your life when you stood before a preacher and you said two simple words, I do. 
And I think it's safe to say that those words have created new realities for you. I mean, is that a safe? Is that a safe? Those very simple words have created reality for you. For human beings, some of our words create reality, most simply define reality, simply express, uh, express reality. God's word creates the reality that it speaks. When God speaks, it happens. And so, when God, in the Old Testament, uh, God speaks, and the heavens and the earth are created. God speaks, and the people of Israel are set free from slavery in Egypt. God speaks, and David becomes king. In the New Testament, God speaks, and lepers are healed. God speaks, and Jesus is raised from the tomb. Uh, God speaks, and the Holy Spirit comes on, on Pentecost. And in our modern day, God speaks, and your sins are forgiven. And God speaks, and you are claimed by God in holy baptism. Huh? God's word creates the reality that it expresses. And so when we deal with the word of God, it's an expression of power and life. It does something. And the job of the church is to hear that word, to live in that word, and then to share that word. That word of God becomes foundational for all that we are. Let me go just a little bit further with that, and I'll take the last slide here. Uh, Luther also said that we always need to distinguish in God's word between law and gospel. And I kind of like this. We need to distinguish God's word always contains both law and gospel. Law is that which tells us what to do. Thou shalt only drive 65 miles an hour. Uh, do not kill, do not commit adultery, honor your parents. Law tells us what to do. The gospel is the announcement of what God has done for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Gospel is always a gift, always a promise. Okay? God's word is both. God's word is both. Both are important. We need, need to have both. Both have their function. The law has a very important function. It organizes life. It shows us our guilt. Huh? So law is important. Gospel is important. Both have to be proclaimed by the church, but only the gospel saves us. Only the gospel saves us. We finally are not saved by anything we do. We're saved by God's pronouncement, I claim you in the name of Jesus. Huh? The gospel, God's gift, is what saves us. All this ties in uh, with justification by grace. Well, why does Luther put such a big emphasis on this? Uh, he puts such a big emphasis because we human beings are such inherent legalists that we will always turn the gospel into the law or, or water down, turn the gospel into some kind of a hybrid. We have trouble keeping the gospel clean. And so what you hear uh, a lot of times in American churches is if you really believe, huh, God will love you. If you really believe, you know, God will forgive you. Well, that's law, isn't it? It tells me what I have to do. The focus is on me. I've got to do And I've always had trouble with that. How do I know when I really believe? I mean, I, you know, that, that it puts all the, all, the, all the focus back on me, and there's not a lot of good news in that. Or another one that I love is God helps those who help themselves. 
You ever heard that one? By the way, that's not in the Bible. Please don't go looking for it in the Bible. Uh, but we say that a lot. God helps those who helps, help themselves. I mean, there's some gospel in there. God helps you, but only if you help yourself. And then the question becomes, have you helped yourself enough? We have a tendency uh, to turn the gospel into the law or at least water it down with some law. And Luther's point is that if we do that, we always leave people in despair. The focus is on me. I'm never sure when I'm saved. And so the job of the church is to proclaim the gospel loudly and clearly. Keep that clean. In the name of Jesus, your sins are forgiven. Huh? In your baptism, you are claimed by Jesus Christ. You are now part of this community. The gospel is always that powerful proclamation of what God has done for you. And Luther says you've got to distinguish those two to keep the gospel clean. And I think he's absolutely right. We live in a day and age that's absolutely dying to hear a word of good news. And we as a church can't water that down with our own requirements. We need to keep that clean, the good news of, of what God has done in Christ. Oh, and as I'm looking at the clock, it's just a little bit after eight, uh, so I better stop. You have been very patient. I've covered a whole lot of ground. Uh, but let me stop there, uh, let everybody take a breath, and then let's take some time for questions, if we, if we can. Hi, Bill. What do you... <laughs> so what was the uh, disagreement on communion at the colloquy with Zwingli? The, uh, the four were, were the, the Lutherans and the Reformed uh, disagree on, uh, uh, disagreed on communion. Uh, yeah, Eric, as, as a Reformed, we, we understand communion differently. And actually, the Lutheran understanding is, is very close to the Catholics. Uh, we believe in what we call true presence, that, that Christ is truly present in the, uh, in the bread and the wine. When you take bread and wine, uh, you get Jesus. Uh, Luther, Luther said that Christ is truly present in, with, through, and under uh, the bread and the wine. Uh, the Reformed tradition is, no, it, it's, it's a memorial, it's a reminder, it's symbolic, uh, but you don't have the true presence. The, the hang-up was, uh, for Zwingli and, and Calvin, uh, they thought that, that something finite, like bread and wine, would not be capable of carrying the infinite God. That something finite uh, could not, they had the Latin phrase, the, 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 inf the finite is not capable of bearing the infinite. Uh, for Luther, uh, the beauty of the gospel is that the infinite God comes to us in the earthly. That the infinite God comes to us precisely in, in the midst of this earth. And his favorite example was Bethlehem. You know, on, on Christmas. Here is this infinite son of God, the Lord of all creation, born in a barn for crying out loud. Uh, but two different understandings of what happens, in, and they could not resolve it, and they split. And we haven't resolved it yet. There have been ongoing conversations, uh, but we still... Uh, and it, it, it's one of the ironies, to me, of, of, of church history, that Jesus gives this gift of Holy Communion to unify his people. And we've argued about it and had more divisions over that than anything else in the history of the church. There's just something wrong about that. So, yeah. Yes? Mm-hmm. Hi, thank you. Father Joshua and I from the Cathedral of Immaculate Conception. Um, well, so, just, I, I, maybe this sounds strange, but um, you would think that I would, I would come here and listen to a discussion of uh, Martin Luther's reform and, and be viscerally opposed in all cases. I, I, and, well, I am, but I also... <laughs> 
<laughs> but you know, I'm also not. I, I, uh, I have to, I have to correct you real quick on the last thing yep, you said. Please. There were not disagreements on Holy Communion until the ninth century under Bering, when Berengarius uh, okay. uh, rejected uh, certain previous doctrines. That actually, until the ninth century, everybody's yeah, there's no, there's on no the same page. There's no distinction there. You have uh, uh, Redbertus and Retramnus are the earliest theologians of, of mm -hmm. the presence, and um, Berengarius is the first to reject the idea of the true presence in a public way, as far as I understand it. So for at least eight centuries, we're all like, <laughs> we got it. It was yeah. great. <laughs> uh, okay, anyways, my, my question actually, I, what I found with your talk to be fascinating is I kept thinking to myself, yeah, pastor, that, that's great, but there's so much that I want to say. And so I, I want to point actually to a question, I want to try to poke into a question that you said about what Luther himself taught, and instead of trying to disagree with you or something, uh -huh. um, you, you talked about the bondage of the will, uh -huh. and I, I, I want to suggest that you actually didn't go far enough in your description of Luther's opinion. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. Much of the way you described it, I think, was similar to what a Catholic view would be, but I'm not sure that it's what Luther himself held, that, not quite. Mm -hmm. We would hold to an idea of concupiscence, right? Mm -hmm. We have a tendency towards sin, mm -hmm. whereas the, actually the quotation which you had on the slide was referring mm -hmm. to the, the idea that without grace, every human act is in fact sinful. That's what it seemed to suggest to me. Is okay. If he's doing what he does by his will, his own will, that he's not able to commit good acts. Yeah. Would you say that Luther goes more, even more toward that direction? Yeah. That without grace, even if a pagan person um, like try, attempts to do something good, he's still falling into a sinful act. Would Luther go that far? And that's what it seems to imply when I read Bondage of the Will. Yeah. I wouldn't want to go that far personally, but yeah, yeah, so. no, uh, that's Luther goes a lot further in bondage of the will than uh, than, than than I would. But it, it's interesting, you know. I said Luther was an Augustinian monk, uh, and a lot of this bondage of the will stuff, he's following Augustine. I mean, it, he's he's in, a, uh, you know, he's uh, really in step with a lot of Catholic tradition there. Uh, would every good work, uh, act, probably, in in, and I think Luther's response would be what what. Uh, we tend to do is when we do a good work, we think that it glorifies ourselves and I can make it without God. That, that we have a tendency uh, to turn our good works inward. Uh, and as soon as we do that, the focus is right back on that old ego again. And so I, I think he would go there. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll give you an, actually an example of that, that that struck me like a ton of bricks. I mean, I'm, I'm a young pastor, and I'm in, a, in rural Kentucky, and, and you know I've been wrestling with all this stuff in the classroom and not sure what I believed. And uh, uh, we had a young lady in the congregation that had a gorgeous voice. I mean, just beautiful voice. Uh, and, and she would sing for us about twice a year. And, and I mean, I would beg her, you know, could you sing for us, you know, at least every other week and maybe every Sunday? Uh, and, and, and she said no, and I said, well, well, well why not? And she said, I struggle because when I'm singing, I'm never quite sure if I'm glorifying God or glorifying myself. And I thought, wow, is that sensitivity. And then I got to thinking myself, you know, as, as a preacher, I'm sorry, full confession here. You know, I, I like to preach. I take that calling very seriously. It is, it is, uh, it is vitally important to me. Uh, and yet, there's a part of me when I give a good sermon that thinks, doggone Mark, you were good today. Hope the church council noticed that next time they talk that, you know? You know, there, there's, that, there's that, we have a tendency to take even our holiest and turn it in on ourselves. And, and, and I think that's what Luther's getting at. Uh, and and, and that, at, at that point, I gotta say, yeah, he's on to something. 
He's on to, I can, I can pervert about anything. I'm not proud of that, and I'm trying to, trying to get beyond that, but we can corrupt about anything. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's, uh, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Hey, so I have a question about kind of the future of the church, in your opinion. So it's more of an opinion question. Um, I've been really uh, obsessed in thinking about what unity would look like for the church in the future. Um, I would love to hear your thoughts on um, where we're moving in your, in your view um, and if there is and what it looks like if there's unity among the denominations uh, and with the Catholic Church. Yeah. That's a lot, I know. Yeah, Take your time. Where, 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 where are we going? How do, how do, we, uh, how do we move forward? I mean, I, Christ specifically prays for his people to be one. We at least need to seek out what that means. I mean, what, 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 does, what does that look like? Uh, boy, that's a good question. That is a that beautiful question. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm not quite sure. Even within Lutheran circles, I have trouble answering that because the, uh, uh, the Lutheran church in, it, is in the process of splintering in this country. Uh, there's just been uh, there's been some wild divisions in Lutheranism over whether or not we still take the Word of God seriously, and uh, and so even within the Lutheran Church, there's not a lot of unity right now. Uh, but overall, I would hope uh, I would hope that we could. What one of my one of my thoughts. Uh, so this with a quarter, you know, might get you a cup of coffee. But one of my thoughts is is that. Uh, even if we don't overcome the denominationalism, that we can learn to work with each other and learn from each other. Uh, there are, there are some, some uh, precious insights uh, that other traditions have that Lutherans don't. And, and if, uh, too often I think the denominationalism uh, becomes a competition. This is why we're right and you're wrong. And if we could get out of that and see it rather as an enriching, you know, what can I learn uh, from Catholicism? What can I learn from the Reformed tradition? What can I learn from, uh, from Luther? I, I think that would twist that whole question around. And then it becomes more of a cooperation, more of a... I, it, and it's a, it's a change in attitude, I, th I think. And I think that becomes, uh, uh, becomes implicit. And I don't know, you know, nationally, I don't know if we could do it, but we could sure have some fun with that in Tyler. And, uh, you know, and that's why we had that, uh, this uh, Mockingbird conference uh, uh, last uh, winter was it? Winter, uh, marvelous, uh, just marvelous. And then stuff like this, where, where Christians are coming together and talking and exploring, I think is a great place to, uh, to, to start. Uh, we also, the panel discussion at the end of all this, we want to kind of play with that. So what, what does this mean moving forward in, in, uh, in Tyler? Can we cross-pollinate better? Yeah. Right? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. uh, I have just a simple thing I picked up long ago and it was abiding uh, it's a German word I think it's Beiruf B-E-R-U-F-F it's a, from the Greek word meaning calling okay maybe vocation okay but uh, I've lived my whole life I've abided in my calling and I've trusted in the Lord and I've to this point uh, been happy okay okay yeah I'll deal with that Mark <laughs> And actually, I'll do, a, I'll, I'll do a commercial. Our fifth, our, fifth, uh, our fifth session is going to be on Lutheran vocation. You know, what is actually your calling? And it's stuff I love in Luther. Uh, Luther writes in his large catechism, well, I'll quiz you. What's the most important calling that any person can have? What is the most important job on the face of the earth? Parenting. Parenting. 
Luther says that the most important job anybody can have is a parent, and that is more important than any congressman, judge, teacher, priest, pastor, whatever. In fact, these other positions are important insofar as, uh, insofar as they help parents with their most important work of, of raising children. It's intriguing to me. Uh, but it means then that, that my calling, uh, in fact, Luther gets graphic with this stuff. And he'll talk about, you know, serving others means changing a dirty diaper and, you know, some of this stuff. But, but that, those are actually acts of Christian service. And how do we see our faith as expressed in loving those closest to us? My, my vocation then, uh, my, my, my first vocation, I think, is to be a good husband and a good father. Uh, and, and, and that that's central for my Christian faith walk. And that's not just something besides my faith, that's the very essence of my faith. Uh, and then my other callings, you know, what teacher, nurse, uh, farmer, mechanic, that that also is how you live out your faith, serving the community. It's some, we're we're going to spend, spend actually a session on that. Uh, but I think some powerful stuff. Mm -hmm. Thank you for your talk tonight. Um, I've really enjoyed it. I wonder if you could talk for a few minutes about the second generation of Lutherans after Luther passes away <laughs> and Melanchthon and, and others take over. They seem to be a little, I'm not a Lutheran, I'm a Baptist, which means I can hmm? read but I can't drink. Um, <laughs> but, but, but it's been a while since I've read this. Yeah. I'm not a good Baptist. Yeah. Hey. No, but my recollection is that Melanchthon and others yeah. are a soft, they're, not, they're a little softer on, on the bondage of the will yeah, and, they and, were. Some, and some other uh, they Luther, were. Lutheran doctrines. Yeah. And I wonder if you could talk about how that's affected Lutheranism as a denomination and, and whether they're more akin to Lutheran himself or yeah. the, kind of that second generation of yeah. men who, who took over. Yeah. I, boy, my, my first thought, and I probably shouldn't say this, uh, but you know what happens with the second generation of Lutheran? And my first, uh, first response is all hell breaks loose. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it was kind of like Luther uh, was dynamic enough to hold a lot of this together. Uh, and, and as soon as Luther was gone, they tried to formalize it and institutionalize it. And, and it, it, massive arguments, uh, massive arguments. Uh, Philip Melanchthon uh, was Luther's uh, cohort, uh, close, worked very closely with Luther, uh, became... After, the, after Luther's death went in some directions I don't think Luther would agree with, uh, but some massive divisions. And yeah, Lutheran's been arguing about some of that stuff ever since. Uh, uh, some examples, the bondage of the will uh, is a hot debate in, in Lutheranism. I remember when I was in seminary, some of the professors loved that and some of that hated it. And they would argue with each other. They'd preach in chapel, they'd argue, they'd have classes, and they'd explain why Professor so-and-so was wrong. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, when, what, what I told you about bondage of the will, uh, I can get Lutheran professors who would say, ah, he was just off on that day. He just, it was a bad day. So uh, they, they, there's an attempt to, to formalize and institutionalize. And it, it changed some of the dynamics of, uh, of uh, I, I think, the Lutheran Church started as, as more of a movement. Uh, and with the second generation became more of an institution. And with, with all the, the, the bad that goes with that. It, it formalized some stuff and yeah, and we've been arguing about some of that stuff ever since. We've been arguing, uh, arguing, uh, uh, arguing some of that stuff ever since. Yeah, <laughs> that's... Uh. We pretty good? We talked long enough? Let's, and if we are, let's quote where we're ahead. Uh, if people have other questions, you know, I'll be around. Please stop and ask. Uh, thank you for, uh, for your attention. I think this is, this, I think I'm kind of the warm-up act. 
Uh, please, 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 please come back next week. Uh, we'll, we'll have uh, uh, Father Joshua and Bishop Strickland will be here to present a Catholic, a Catholic side. Then we have uh, uh, Eric and Ben Wheeler are going to be doing Reformed, and uh, Matt Bolter is going to be doing some stuff on uh, the Reformation in England. Uh, Blaine, you get to tackle Lutheran vocation, and that's actually a fun one. And then uh, the last night, we really do want to get some people and have a very uh, animated discussion. Of, now what do we do with all this? Where do we, uh, where do we go? So... Let's leave it at that. Thank you very much. And any questions you have, let me, let me know. <laughs>